Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 69 of Life and Lessons. On this week's episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Elk Viss. Elk is a practical philosopher and a best-selling author. Her book, How to Know Everything, offers a framework for asking better questions and makes the case as to why we should all improve our question-asking skills. In the next hour, you're going to learn the six fundamental errors we all make when it comes to effective question asking and how to avoid them, why creating detachment between your opinions and your identity can help you not only ask better questions, but become a better conversationalist, why we shouldn't look to formal education, politics, journalism, or police interview techniques to sharpen our ability to ask precise questions, the reason it's so important to ask yourself better questions and a really practical exercise that you can make use of to do just that and so much more. This was always going to be an interesting one, sitting down and asking questions to somebody who is, to all intents and purposes, a professional question asker. But I learned a lot from this conversation around a subject that's grossly undervalued and yet one that holds huge upside if only we were to get it right. And I'm sure that you're going to learn a lot from it as well. But just before then, if you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. Uh, there's so many more great guests, so many more great conversations coming up in the very near future. The next guest in a couple of weeks' time is Ben Pearson. And then just after that, we have Dom McGregor of Social Chain on. And I really don't want you to miss those conversations. So just hit follow, hit subscribe, and you'll be the first to know when those episodes are released. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 69 of Life and Lessons with Elk Viss. So questions are something that we use every day in life. And yet, for the most part, most of us don't really think about the questions we ask. We just kind of throw them out there, get an answer back. And, you know, we, we don't hold a huge amount of weight towards the questions we ask. And yet something in your life has compelled you towards uh, really digging deep into question asking and building a framework around asking better questions. And the end result of that is a quite substantial 300 page book. But when was it that you realized that you and others around you needed help with asking better questions? Well, I think I first realized it when I was working at, as a theater director and a theater teacher, where I just you know, came to the conclusion that I was confused and I was searching for questions that would lead my actors to you know, better material to use in our performances. So it was a genuine search for asking better questions in order to help myself and the, the, the creative processes that I was going through. And of course, in the, in the introduction of the book, there is a very explicit situation where I came to the same conclusion because in my quest, I stumbled upon this concept called practical philosophy. Uh, and I was confused of such a concept, but I also found a course. I think about 10 lessons each week. Uh, so I signed up and on the first day, we, the group of students, sat down at a little lunch table. We didn't know each other at all, but it was a course in practical philosophy. So we had just had some lessons about Socratic dialogue. We were all very enthusiastic, or at least 
I was, I'm, I'm not sure about the rest. Um, and then this topic just came up at this lunch table of about six people. And each and every one started asking, started answering the question, do you have children? So one person said, yes, I have a child. She's called so-and-so and she's going to school and she has this and that. And then the next person and the next person. And I was, I think, in my late 20s. So I knew of these little conversations about children. I didn't have any. I, I taught children in theater lessons a lot. So I had some fun stories. And I was also wondering, like, well, how do you decide whether you are try going to try to have kids or not? It's, it's a big question. An interesting one as well. So everyone was looking at me. I was the, you know, next in line. And I said, well, no, I don't have any children. And I took a breath to ask a question or start to tell something. And I didn't even get a chance to finish my sentence because everyone was looking straight at my neighbor, obviously trying to avoid eye contact with me. So I was like, what is happening here? How have we just decided that only the people that do have children get to take part in this conversation and the people that answer no to this question can somehow not share their stories? That's strange. So as my neighbor was speaking, I got worked up a little bit and I was thinking, well, I'm going to defend all the women that have no children and always, you know, uh, get kind of ignored after answering no to this question. So the next lady who said, no, I do not have children. I was looking at the rest of the group and they already wanted to continue on to the next person. But I thought, well, no, I'm going to uh, give make some space for her story as well. So I had no skills in questioning whatsoever yet, <laughs> but my intentions were pure. So I just raised the question of, was that a deliberate choice that you didn't have children? She was in her forties, I think. And immediately the whole atmosphere changed. It went from bright and sunny to dark and cloudy uh, because it was a question that I was not supposed to ask. That was very clear to me. It was the wrong question, the wrong time. Um, how dare I ask such a question, including the lady herself, by the way, she didn't appreciate it either. So it was a very shameful experience. I remember because I, I really was curious about her story and why not ask this question. So from that moment on, I um, I kind of became like a, a bulldog or a terrier, just, you know, having this idea of, hey, that's funny how we deal with questions. And it was definitely a moment where I noticed where there's something strange about ourselves and questioning. Yeah. And so between asking that awkward question and the feeling that rushed through your body in the moment when you realized this wasn't a good question or this wasn't a good time to ask the question and the day when you finished publishing your book you hit save on that document right there's a process in the middle there somewhere take me on that process how did you go from um, perhaps asking the wrong question at the wrong time to the wrong person to really having a thorough grip on what to ask and when wow that's that's a great one well it's a process of years and to be quite honest i'm still learning every day the fact that you write a book about a topic does not mean that you're an expert with 100 percent score um so i still make mistakes um i i just make them better mm -hmm. <laughs> um so i think i just 
started practicing a lot and reading a lot and I came into contact with the Socratic dialogue as a method of having conversations that has you know a set sort of of rules or guidelines that really help to develop a conversation that's more philosophical but I also studied like psych psycho psychology stuff to answer questions like why do we get upset if we get questioned or if our beliefs get questioned or you know if we have to defend our opinions what what's happening there so I think I just got very excited about the topic and I also experienced in a way how um, how how big a difference it can make in our conversations if we do some little things just a little bit differently so I think all this combined together really made me want to be an expert in getting yeah you know learning more about the topic not to be an expert but you know <laughs> to to really understand the, dy the dynamics and I truly believe that we long for these tough conversations we do want to have the the tough talks about you know politics or in our families or with friends but the debate easily gets heated and it it's not it's not necessary i know that now i didn't know that then at the lunch table <laughs> <laughs> so you say we have a, a longing for these questions sorry these conversations and i agree there's there's no better feeling than stepping away from a 45 minute or an hour long conversation where phones haven't been looked at where distractions haven't been in the room and you've just had a conversation it's something actually i quite like about this podcast and hopefully through this podcast i'm building my question asking ability but i want to pose a question to you because on the back of your book you, you ask the question, why are we so bad at asking good questions? What is the answer to that? Um, the answer, I think, has multiple dimensions, multiple angles that you can look at it. So when I started writing the book, I thought, well, I can just give throw around some tips for people to do better. But I thought that it would be at least as interesting to dive into some of the reasons that we pretty much suck at asking questions in the first place. So I did research, I, I did interviews, I read research you know, from universities. And in the book, I define six major reasons as to why we are generally not good at asking questions. So first of all, I found out, and it really surprised me, that it's human nature, it's actually biology, to not ask questions. There was a research, I think it was done at Harvard, and they found out that when a person does what they called self-disclosure, so speaking about what you think, uh, what you're interested in, your ideas, your opinions, our, dubby, our body produces dopamine, which is, of course, this neurotransmitter that makes us very happy. <laughs> so but in, in our biology, we are hardwired to speak about ourselves and not necessarily asking deepening questions to other people. So that was an interesting one. And I think it's a big one because if we're not careful, then each time a person presents us with a problem or a topic or something that we're very you know, passionate about, if we're not careful, we will try to find a way to speak about ourselves again instead of the other person. 
Is it right yeah. to say on that then? Because uh, funnily enough, a few episodes ago, I had a conversation about a study in the very same realm, which is this idea that if you have a conversation with somebody, the more they speak, the better they will rate you as a conversationalist, which is this funny paradox. So based on that and what you've just said, is it true to say then that it's not that we don't like being asked questions, it's that we don't like asking questions because then it removes the the baton from our hand and give somebody else permission to speak is are we hardwired to want to just speak about ourselves yes yes i think it's both we don't like being questioned and i will get to that in i think reason five or six and um we are hardwired to speak about ourselves so in fact if you want to make sure that after your conversation the other person thinks highly of you, make them speak about themselves because they will go on full dopamine mode <laughs> and they will connect it to your conversation. So that's a great idea. <laughs> so I think another big reason that we are generally not so good at asking good questions is that we are afraid to ask questions. If you look at my situation at the lunch table, of course, the next time that I encountered a woman with no children but and that i was really curious to know her story i'm not sure that i dare to ask the question again because this experience was so shameful so we have created a culture well at least here in the netherlands and i believe in england as well where you know if i'm going to ask a question i might seem stupid or i might embarrass the other person or think or things might get a bit awkward and here in Holland, we even have like these little phrases where we tell children like, oh, but that's not a good question. You cannot ask that question. Or in the workplace where, you know, you're, 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 you're having a conversation with a colleague and you think, mm, should I ask this question or no? No, don't ask the question. You will sound stupid. So asking questions, you know, you don't, we often don't dare. So fear is a big one. Um, and in addition to that, that's reason number three. I think we score more points or we get a bigger round of applause if we state our opinions often and clearly and loudly, as opposed to when we ask a question. So just in this society, having an opinion and stating it often, you know, people will think more highly of you than when you start doubting and ask questions. So in job, job descriptions online, you will never find Socrates wanted or professional doubter wanted or you know professional questioner we want people that have a vision and that have power and you know leadership etc etc what do you make of the idea that those attributes are only found truly through effective question asking it's almost like to get yourself to a position where you have knowledge and you have um, some sort of vision you inevitably need to ask questions to get to that point, right? That is how we gather knowledge. And yet, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like as soon as we in culture uh, reach a point such as that, we're then told, okay, questions are off now. You need to just lead, you need to just guide, you need to just clearly state what you think and take into account nobody but yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a huge paradox there. In order to get ahead, you have to ask questions, yet as soon as you start doing that and you you know the higher up you go as in organizations the less they are appreciated so yeah that's a big one so another one would be lack of objectivity i think that in our conversations it, it it's too easy to just state something and then say oh well that's that's just my opinion 
and we have come to view that's just my opinion as a valid argument which it is not <laughs> uh, so we have not learned to think critically to validate arguments to weigh in reasoning to you know have some solid reasoning and arguments in place so that's another one and then i think there are two more one is impatience we generally do not take the time to develop a question we think it takes time to ask questions when i truly believe in the end it does not it saves time and energy and money sometimes and the last one it's a very simple one it's lack of competence i don't know what it's like in the uk but in holland we don't teach children how to think critically or how to ask questions we teach them facts and to reproduce those facts you know mm. that's that it's a kind of black and white you know view that i'm a picture that i'm painting here but in in my dream world there would be a world where we would have you know two hours a week of questioning having philosophical dialogues with children to develop critical thinking autonomous thinking and questioning abilities yeah there's definitely a parallel in the uk uh, i didn't go to university i i speak often on this podcast about some of my uh, at least perceived issues with the formal education process and one of those is as you touch on this idea that um certainly in the education that i was in so the 13 years of um, mandatory education we're taught answers we're given black and white answers and we're taught not to ask why from the youngest age when you go into school and you're perhaps asking a difficult question to a teacher don't ask that through to your final exams where there's a very prescriptive black or white binary uh, answer that either scores you as getting it correct or incorrect and yeah i just think that there's a massive blind spot because the second i stepped away from education and went into the professional world i learned that you know school is all about teaching you the answers and the real world is all about uncovering the questions if that makes sense like you step yes. in the professional yeah. world and you don't know what you're doing and the only way you find out isn't by being given information it's by going to hunt for it and we hunt for it with questions yes i could not agree more there yes i think it's a huge gap you know all these poor kids coming out of school and then to only to discover that what you thought was a black and white world where there are answers and a teacher can provide those answers only to discover that you know 99 percent of the things you know quote unquote is actually not that 100 percent knowable so yeah so with those six core problems what is the antidote how do we go about asking better questions well i think the the the, the biggest antidote and it might also be the hardest it's is pretty much what you just described i think it's to acknowledge our own ignorance and i think that often we pretend to know things in order to provide ourselves with some consolation because knowing things you know feels better it's much more calm <laughs> but in living in the world of the unknown well, actually being human, I think, is living in the world of the unknown. So the first antidote is acknowledging your own ignorance and really reconcile with what you are, a human, that realizing that there is much more that you do not know than there is that you can know. 
And from there, the second step would be develop a curiosity towards the things you don't know. And if those two uh, elements are in place, then you will start asking questions that are actually questions and not just statements or opinions or hypotheses with a question mark dangling at the end somewhere. It's interesting to, to pick up on your point there. It's almost as if we each need to overcome the insecurity of accepting that actually, at least relatively to what we could know, we know nothing at all, period. And it's only when you almost gamify that, turn that into a game and actually decide, right, I'm going to go and find out as much as I can about something. And of course, there is this great paradox, which is that the more you find out about something, the more you realize you know nothing about it in the first place. Um, but yeah, I just, it strikes me that not many people have ever looked at the world and in doing so looked at question asking in such a way that it's almost a set of keys to anything they want, to go anywhere, to speak to anyone, to do anything are there any tips you have to encourage people to give themselves permission to be wrong, give themselves permission to accept that they don't know everything there is to know? And in doing so, give themselves permission to go out there and just freely ask whatever they want without the fear that you described uh, at, the, at the top of this conversation? Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say embrace the fact that you are an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> And that is, that's pretty liberating because, you know, as long as I'm an idiot, there's no standard to be met. There is no mask to be, you know, hold up. There is no stuff I need to prove that I'm good enough, smart enough, whatever enough. Then there's all this freedom and space to just say, well, hey, there's something I don't know, but I would like to find out. Can you help me? What do you think of this? Because of the shame or the, the, the we want to hide the fact that we don't know something, we want to pretend we know something because we're, we're scared of being unmasked for the, the, the doubtful creature that we are, we start, you know, jumping through very strange hoops. <laughs> and um, we get so busy with, you know, proving stuff in the form of questions, which is very unnecessary. <laughs> Do you think that that goes back to uh, the lack of teaching how to ask good questions in education? It's almost as if you you leave education, you leave being a child, you come into the, the scary world that is adulthood, and you realize that perhaps you don't have the tools to ask the questions to uncover true beliefs. And so to go back to your point from earlier, you just end up banding about opinions, maybe occasionally placing question marks on the end of them just to defend what you think you know because you don't have the toolkit to to ask good questions does that make sense yes it makes a lot of sense um, however i do feel that it's not enough to have the toolkit because there's toolkit okay so i have a toolkit but there's also culture with all i and i have a big toolkit dare i say it yes i dare <laughs> my toolkit is huge but the culture is still a culture of what are you doing with your toolkit those are not and you know i've i've made my profession out of it so at least now i am paid to ask the questions that bothers everyone so but you know in real life generally if you have a big toolkit you don't get a lot of applause still so that's why these six reasons are so important to tweak all of them. Because it's not enough to just work on skills alone. We need to work on developing a questioning culture as well, where asking a question is safe. 
and uh, promoted and um, appreciated. How have you in your experience then with your, your large toolkit in a culture that isn't accepting of question asking, how have you reconciled those two things? How have you uh, gone about trying to ask questions, but perhaps asking them into a culture where questions aren't welcome? No, <clears throat> sorry, no. Oftentimes they are not, but that's not really under my control as well. So what I do is on one hand realizing that I am the culture as well. So instead of observing the culture and just seeing it what it is, I've, I've decided to actively go out and change it and promoting questioning by writing a book or giving workshops or lectures or whatever. So I think that's a big part of it. And I have also learned to adapt because Socrates, the, the ancient philosopher is a big part of the book and the inspiration for the book. And he just, you know, went full on questioning mode, which bothered people. So I have tried to find a way to still question people Socratically, but maybe adapt it a little bit. So it's not like a very cold shower early in the morning, but more they ease into it a little bit. And one practical way that I do that is by asking permission before I start asking the, <laughs> the tough questions. It's just saying, hey, I just heard you say something that I'm curious about. Would it be okay if I started asking you some questions about it? And of course, being fully okay with you know, the other person saying, no, I really don't want to, or I'm not up for it, or not interested, or whatever. So I think those are some ways that we can actively contribute to something different that we have now. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah. So is that a piece of advice in and of itself then? Because if you, if by way of a question, you're asking permission to ask questions, I suppose it can be argued that you get the best of both worlds because if somebody says no, then you avoid the awkward situation of asking a question out of place. But if somebody says yes, there's almost then this congruence that they've accepted, they've welcomed in these questions. So maybe they're going to be more open to give answers. So is that something you'd recommend to almost begin your questioning with the question, can I ask about this? Yes, I think it's a very useful tip to do so because I think it does a couple of things. First of all, it prepares the person for some critical questions like, oh, okay, I'm going to be questioned now. So they're much more open to it anyway. They know what's coming. Um, and for yourself as the questioner, it makes your mind clear as well because you're putting yourself in question mode and not in your little dopamine factory where you might try to squeeze some some of your own opinions in. So on our own opinions, um, is our ability to ask good questions tainted by our biases? And if so, how can we go about at least beginning on the journey of trying to remove some of those biases to ask better questions and to, to learn more about those around us? Yes, definitely. Our questions are are highly colored by our bias and the, the biases that we have. Um, and psychologists, they have a name for this. They call it confirmation bias. You know, there's something I think I know and all I'm going to do is to confirm it. So then we ask questions, which are not really questions like, don't you think Pete has a point? Or could it also be that we sh should stop this project or whatever so those are not really questions they sound like one but they're merely just hypotheses or opinions 
form this a question. So the, the, the strict check I recommend people to do is before you speak, before you start making noise, is really be, you know, critical and honest with yourself. Do I have to say something? Do I have an opinion? Or do I want to ask something? And if it's the first, you have an opinion, you want to say something, then go ahead and say it. But don't formulate it as some sort of question because, you know, the, the conversation would just get confused. And if you think you're going to ask a question, then be very clear that the first word of your question is, in fact, a question word. So it's not a verb. It's not should or don't or would. <laughs> the first word of your question should be what, how, when, why. So if you perform those two checks before you start producing sound, I think, you know, a lot of conversations will improve immediately. <laughs> it's interesting. I, um, I find myself all the time and it's something I'm trying to stop or at least trying to get better at. It's not even questions to other people, but I will find myself either trying to challenge or validate an opinion or discover something new and i'll go onto google and i will type in a question a, a question so to speak and i'll um i'll read it back and it's not a question it is literally my opinion with a question mark on the end and then i will selectively read down the search results get to result six and think oh that one looks like it's validating my opinion i'm going to tap on that one and get my knowledge from there do you think there are any parallels in the way that we conduct conversation with people in the real world <laughs> I, I love your little example there. So that's confirmation bias in action. <laughs> so I, I'm just curious, do you have an example of an opinion that you typed into Google? I can't think of what it was, but I caught myself doing it a few weeks ago. I was having a debate, a debate's a strong word, um, with my business partner. And I wanted to point to some sort of external source to say, aha, see, look, I must be right because Google says so. But I stopped myself from doing it. I didn't tell him I stopped myself. I just kind of, I, I moved on from the conversation because I literally, I, I typed in a very specific set of words. I didn't read result one. I didn't read result two. And I, I scanned until I found something that sounded a little bit like what I already believed. And then I went for that. And I just wonder that, yes, we will do that on our smartphones in private, but are we all inadvertently doing that to each other's faces? Yes, definitely. And I love this. I think the quote is from Ruben Mersch. He's a, he's a Dutch author. He says, um, we just strangle facts long enough to produce what we want to hear. And he, he also writes somewhere, um, we use facts like a drunk person uses a lamppost, not for our own enlightenment, but for support. <laughs> so I think that's, uh, yeah, of course it's huge because it's scary and difficult to change your opinion and to be flexible and to investigate and multiple perspectives. It's it's a scary thing to do. So we're, we, we try to avoid it usually. Something that's so interesting, and I certainly don't have the answer as to why we do this, but maybe you do, is that we defend our opinions so incredibly strongly. And yet, if you were to pull back the curtain and ask somebody to uh, lay out how they formulated that opinion, where did that opinion come from? Why did they believe it to be true? Other than just repeating the opinion, opinion back to you with a bit more force in their voice, most people can't 
explain how they formed their opinions. So we don't even know how we arrived with these mindsets, and yet we will defend them viciously. And mm -hmm. recent events across the world have dozens of times in the past few years demonstrated that. I just find it so interesting that there is so much to be discovered on the end of a question mark, and yet we refuse to put the question mark there. Yes. Yeah, it's a big one. I think we identify ourselves with our opinions. It's not something that we have or adopt. It's something that we are. When, you know, if you just would stop identifying yourself with all these opinions and ideas, then they just become something you can investigate and you can toss aside if they no longer suit you. It's so strange that in nature, everything changes. But somehow our opinions do not. That's that's very it's very weird to me. So I think there's a big uh, piece of the puzzle right there. We identify ourselves too much, and if our identity is questioned, then of course you will go on full-on defense mode. So and as you say, that we often do not even know what we are what's the basis of our opinion or an idea we call the socratic way of the, of having a dialogue also thinking backwards because there's a statement an opinion uh, for example if you do not get yourself vaccinated against covid you are very selfish you know it could be some statement that someone makes socratic thinking is thinking backwards because that is only the end usually people have arguments or ideas be, you know below the surface of that statement and we're often not even aware of those and if we investigate those then we ourselves might find out that oops there's a false presupposition there where i based my whole opinion on or the argument that i'm using there is kind of contradictory to what i said here so you might have to acknowledge that what you were thinking before is actually, you know, false or useless or um, it's a fallacy or whatever. So can you think of an example of an opinion of yours that you've changed through asking good questions since you uncovered this this way of seeing the world? All, all the time. I and And not that it's huge shifts but often I, I i change my mind all the time in, in very slight nuances or differences for example when i was young i used to think that as a human being we definitely do have a free will like there's an absolute hundred percent free um, way of, of choosing what you want in life but now i'm not so sure anymore I think that, well, although we have the capacity to decide autonomously for ourselves, there's also such a thing as biology or hormones that we have no control over whatsoever. So all the time I'm, I'm shifting perspectives still. But I think what enables me to do so is being totally fine with changing my mind and not identifying myself with the, the the opinion so if someone asks me about a, an, an opinion i hear myself saying well at this point i think it's like so and so but ask me again in six months and maybe it, it might have changed a little bit 
something I tweeted a while ago. I've just pulled it up as you were speaking because it reminded me of this tweet and this idea. Uh, and I'm going to read it out as I see it. So hopefully this is the right tweet and I'm not just about to throw a random tweet at you. I said, the happiest and most successful people I know are the ones most willing to brazenly contradict a previous version of themselves. So many people hold on to an identity for so long that they don't see that it's holding them back. Have you noticed a difference in your success, in your attainment, in your happiness, in any of these things since you decided that actually the version of yourself who you were previously doesn't need to be the version of yourself that you are in the future? Yes, it's. I, I, I love your tweet. I should follow you on Twitter. And I, I, I don't like Twitter. <laughs> it's it's bad for the mind. Um, but but I love your tweet. Yeah, it's a very nice way of, of of putting it, though. What was your question again? I don't remember. Have you found yourself being happier, more successful, any of these things since you did the opposite to the status quo? Since you decided that actually it's okay to just be a walking contradiction because things, opinions change. Yes, definitely. It is, it's much more playful and you develop a life attitude of, hmm, that's interesting. Let's find out. Let's sharpen my mind against this idea or that article or that topic or this conversation. So yes, I can definitely say that it's much easier. There is, yeah, well, happier. <laughs> it's, it's a big concept, happy. Um, but there is um let me let me just translate this word i don't know if you guys have that in english uh, you would call it peace of mind so in Dutch that, that would be one word but it's it's very peaceful to give yourself permission to change your mind that's awesome i just like you said i i, I cannot really understand why people would hold on so tightly to what they think they need to be think or do that being the same thing as 10 years ago something you speak about in the book is this idea of active listening and asking questions at least to my mind is only one part of the puzzle because if you're not listening to the response or if you're listening out for certain things you're not going to get the information that you went seeking do you have any advice on how we can all become better listeners yes i think i do <laughs> by well I I, I'm not sure I call it active listening because active listening, you know, oftentimes people think that then they have to, you know, nod and say, mm -hmm, or summarize a lot or, you know, working. <laughs> and I would just say, well, truly listening equals not working. Because of our little dopamine factory that our body is in the end, we are working so hard. When you're telling a story, I'm already thinking about, oh, what should I do with that? What's my opinion on this? How would I have reacted if I was in Sean's uh, shoes? So we are very busy, busy listeners already. <laughs> but with, with the attention in and to ourselves and our own story. So in order to cleanly listen without our own opinions and ideas in the mix, I would advise people to really consciously direct the attention to the words that the other one is using and really be convinced that what you have to say, what you have experienced in the same you know, topic is not relevant. And really just try to be curious as to what exactly happened, what exactly was the other person thinking? What is he thinking now? How would he, which words would he use to describe 
this event that happened and why this word and not that word and why this concept and if you start listening in that way then the questions follow much more natural naturally is there a way to know at what point you should can interject at what point you should or can add uh, your own piece of color to the conversation because of course you know if it's if it's one-way traffic it becomes quite transactional we all absolutely i was smiling when you described the feeling of listening to an answer and suddenly halfway through the answer um you switch off listening and you begin formulating the words that you're about to say in response to the answer i suppose i have two questions on that number one how do we avoid doing that because it seems so deeply ingrained within us and then at what point is it right to say oh actually i have a similar experience or, or actually i believe this so I'm going to start with your last question. At what point is it okay to share your own topics, ideas, experiences? I would like to suggest the experiment of waiting until the other person asks you. <laughs> because oftentimes, you know, the person has, hasn't even finished their story and there we are with, you know, oh, but I had the same thing because my boss or my mother-in-law or whatever, so just try to wait and there will come a point usually where the other person asks you hey have you had something similar what's your take on this what's your view well that might be a good time to share it <laughs> because mostly we do it too soon and how to avoid it well i think the easiest way i would describe it as just the art of shutting up <laughs> just keep your mouth shut and notice what's happening inside your own brain notice that the words are really wanting to vomit out of your mouth and just stop yourself and redirect your attention a lot of people that do like workshops with us they compare it what we do with um, active mindfulness because it's very deliberately directing your attention to the words to the concepts to the the, the the body language of the other person. It's interesting. It, almost word for word, uh, the way you described uh, listening is how the meditation apps I've used in the past describe mindful meditation, right? It is this idea you, you catch the thought, you notice it, but you don't try and pursue it. You don't try and act on it. You just notice it's there and then you divert your attention back to whatever it is you should be focusing on. That's a, a really interesting parallel and one that I've never considered before. Exactly. So... <laughs> You, you, I, I, I think someone even made a mantra out of it. If they catch themselves wanting to share, wanting to give some advice or whatever, they just hear this frozen song, let it go, let it go. And then whoops, they, there they go back with their attention to the conversation. So you talk about historical figures, philosophers and so on in the book. Um, something that intrigues me in, in modern day life is the professions where people uh, either win or lose on questions that they ask right journalists police officers investigators is there anything we can learn from these these modern questioning practitioners to improve our daily experience do you mean can we learn from journalists and police officers how to ask better questions yeah or are they not doing a good job maybe that's a question are they being no. effective? they generally suck at asking good questions yeah. where are they going wrong <laughs> 
I would I would not look at them as being the greatest example of really asking pure, good, deepening, sharp questions. No. <laughs> and I really, but you know, they're forgiven. Since I wrote the book, I did a lot of interviews. And of course, since since I wrote the book on questioning, journalists are generally pretty afraid of asking questions <laughs> <laughs> to someone who wrote a book about questioning. And they, they catch, because they read the, the book usually, so they catch themselves asking very poor, bad, suggestive, suggestive questions. Um, and they, they recognize, and I recognize that, well, I need to write an article. The article must be about this. It must be about that. We have to cover those points. So oftentimes they just need to get some quotes that they already know because they read the book, but they just need to hear you say it. <laughs> One journalist even told me so, like, I'm going to ask you everything where you could say, well, you can read it in the book, it's right there, but I need to hear you say it, otherwise I cannot write it down. <laughs> and as for police officers, well, maybe I'm being a bit judgmental here, but, you know, generally it's it's more in the form of and what are we doing here? Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, so you are, we have an, uh, how do you say, evening curfew at this mm -hmm. moment because of COVID in the, in, in the Netherlands. So, you know, the police officers might say something like, well, it's past 10, madam. What, what do we think we are doing? <laughs> so I'm not sure I would, um, well, maybe in police interrogations, of course, there has to be the objective questioning. So sure, we can learn something from that there. Yeah, that, I, th I think that's a good point. You know, factual questions. Where were you at that time? What were you doing? Who were you, who were you with? And even, I know I've worked in the police academy with students of the police academy. And if they are suggestive, in their questioning, for example, when they're, you know, an accident happened or someone stole something, if they are too suggestive and they ask, for example, was the car blue, then the whole um, report that they have to make is, can be, uh, how do you say, can be invalid because their questioning was not objective enough. So there they really have to be careful by asking objective questions. So there we can pick up a thing or two, yeah. Is there a place for loaded questions? Um, with children around the age of four to six, <laughs> where we say, do you want a, a sandwich with peanut butter or with cheese? Those are the appropriate moments to ask such questions. But as adults, no. I would even, maybe Sartre would say that you are in bad faith. Because you already know what you want to do, then at least be clear and honest about it. And in that same vein, then, and this is this is a question very much for me. Like, even if people weren't listening, I'd be asking this one because I find myself doing this a lot. And I don't think it's any sort of bias, but I struggle greatly to ask one sentence questions. I find myself having to go around the block and have like six sentences of context of how I arrived at this thought and this and that. Is that a trait of bad questioning or is context important to make sure that your question is precise? And is a short question and a precise question 
uh, mutually exclusive? Well, it's inclusive. A short, a, a precise question is usually short because we tend to think that the more words I use to explain my idea, the clearer I will be. Well, generally it's the opposite. So in order to be more precise in your questioning, just leave out the whole monologue or the introduction or the context. It also, you might even argue, just, you know, you might even argue that you're kind of patronizing the other person or underestimating rather, because who says that I need a whole explanation? Maybe I'm smart enough to understand your question the first time. So the question is, why do we do it though? And I think there are a couple of reasons why we do it. First is we don't think before we speak. We just start producing words and somewhere in the end I will make a point and that's the thing I actually wanted to say. The second is we are scared that if I don't provide context, my question is not really good. It might be a bit of a dumb question or whatever. Um, and I think... A third is because we think the other person is too stupid to, to understand only our question in one sentence. So I think it's interesting to investigate a little bit as to why, why, why is it that you do that? And if you find the reason, then it's much easier to quit doing it. One of the exercises that we have people do in trainings and workshops, which is really interesting, is one, they have to slow down so suppose we are in this exercise, then we have to have a conversation about a question or a topic. And each time before we speak and say or ask something, we have to be silent for 20 seconds or longer. So that makes sure that the whole introduction or the whole monologue that you want to have, you know, you can re-evaluate. And we have people write the question down that they want to ask. And oftentimes, actually, 99.9% .9 of the time is uh, the, the effect is that our questions become much clearer and sharper, and we find out that we don't really need the whole context thing. Is becoming comfortable with silence, therefore, on the back of uh, that exercise, if we were to use it practically, is silence a good tool for precision? Is silence a good tool for conversation? It's a necessary tool for a clean, good, deep conversation. So it always surprises me that we can be so scared of something so harmless as silence. <laughs> because what's going to happen? What, what monster is going to eat you alive? Nothing is going to happen in silence. Maybe we find it scary because in silence, we are confronted with our own thoughts and we cannot have a whole you know we cannot mask it with using a lot of words that sound smart but are actually not so i'm always a bit mm, surprised of this phrase getting comfortable with silence <laughs> i'm getting puzzled just thinking about it like if i'm alone then there is silence and i'm pretty comfortable so what's there to get comfortable with it's interesting because yeah. the uh, the idea of solitude, I believe, is in Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. He suggests that it's actually incredibly rare that we ever have true solitude. We're, we're never really 
at least speaking for a majority of people, in silence. And perhaps that's where the fear of it comes from. Yes, we can be alone, but if we're alone with a book in our hand and the radio on and a podcast on and the TV on mute, we are not alone in silence. We are in the sphere of others' thoughts and others' output. I think that maybe the idea of coming face to face with somebody and nothing happening for a few seconds is so alien to us, at least in this hyper-connected world, that certainly my generation, silence seems scary. I don't know the answer mm -hmm. as to why. Maybe the suggestion I made is some way there, but it just feels like this, this deeply ingrained thing that we just can't deal with silence. Yeah, definitely. I don't know which philosopher said it. I'm, I'm not as good as, you know, just producing philosopher quotes and then actually knowing who who it was from so sorry to whoever but i know there's a philosopher who says um the the most trouble that we are in right now is because human beings are unable to be alone with themselves in silence and i think there is some truth to that yeah so silence is foreign and yet maybe more necessary than ever Something that isn't silent in recent years is the the political realm. Certainly in the UK, the UK has managed to impressively pull itself apart, at least ideologically, based on political issues. And these political issues all revolve around questions. Should the, the UK remain in the EU? Should Scotland remain part of the UK? Who should be in charge of the government? What role does effective question asking play in politics? And do you think that there is at least some scope to heal some of these political wounds if only we had the right questions to ask. Mm. So let's maybe chuck it into, into tiny bits and pieces. So I think in politics, just like in our everyday life, it would benefit from asking better questions, but also allowing oneself to be questioned. It's, it works both ways. Um, and I, I see a big problem there as well. We politicians, everyone don't know how to ask questions, but we also don't know how to be questioned. And we are too, too easily satisfied with answers too quickly. So I, I would, yeah, if I had a magic wand, I would, you know, drizzle some Socratic attitude around politics everywhere, because I think it's it would be a great benefit. Yeah. Something interesting you said there is about being too satisfied with answers. Now I can only speak for the UK and politics in the UK here, but I imagine this is global. Politicians are great at saying many words, but in doing so, saying absolutely nothing at all. They can. Mm -hmm produce a 300 word answer to a question which when read back as a transcript actually didn't answer the question do you think the problem there is more to do with the question being imprecise or just an avoidance of wanting to answer it well in theory it could be both but generally i would say it's the latter that's that's a big problem politicians are experts at not answering questions and I think it's a it's a huge problem because thorough questioning, thorough, you know, dialoguing takes a lot of discipline and courage and honesty and 
admitting that you were wrong and changing your opinion and letting yourself be influenced by what another person is saying. So we have a quite a long way to go there, I guess. Yeah. Is there therefore a case, both in politics, but in life more generally, of becoming more comfortable with asking follow-up questions? Asking a question that isn't necessarily loaded, but suggests that actually I don't feel like I've uncovered all of the information that I hoped to uncover from your answer. How do we structure follow-up questions to really get the most out of dialogues? Ah, that's a good one. Well, first of all, is by really listening very carefully, which is why it's so necessary to direct your attention to what the other person is saying and not about your story, because you will not pick it up. And checking, did I actually get an answer to my question? Or was it just a bunch of words saying nothing? So that is something that we have to be very aware of, that if I ask you a yes or no question, if you provide me with a whole monologue, then there's a mismatch. So in the book, I compare the art of questioning with uh, the old game of dominoes, with this little, you know, little blocks and you have to put a five by a five and not with a four or a three or a six. But oftentimes in questioning, we put down a, a little block with a five and the other person responds with three or six. So if I ask you, um, what time will you be here? And you will say, well, just after dinner. That's not really an answer, but it happens all the time. So in developing follow-up questions, first of all, make sure that you got an answer in the first place. And if not, repeat your question. Why would we even bother to continue to the next topic or the next question if the first one hasn't even been properly answered? Lots of answers that avoid really answering a question are because the question feels confrontational. How do we structure questions so that they don't feel like conflict? And how do we as somebody being questioned become comfortable with a question that might feel uncomfortable but is actually asked uh, with with good nature mm. so that would presuppose that uncomfortableness is a negative concept which i would propose it might not be <laughs> I, I i think You've, you've probably, you, you, I, I'm sure you know this, that you were in a conversation, someone asked you a question and you went totally silent. And maybe you even said it out loud, out loud, like, wow, that's a good question. And it really made you think and a bit uncomfortable, right? You know, you know, a, a situation like that. Yeah. Yeah. What's wrong with being uncomfortable at that moment? So that's a, a huge problem of us wanting conversations to be safe and sweet and harmony and joy and colors and lights and cake and whatever. But they're not. Human beings are messy. Our conversations are messy. And if a question is uncomfortable, let it be uncomfortable. We are not performing open heart surgery no one is going to die from a question <laughs> so that's that's on the on on one side of the equation that i i would say reconcile with the fact that conversations that are meaningful are by definition uncomfortable otherwise it's small talk also a great way to spend time but not a philosophical thinking 
developing dialogue. And I think another one is, um, it, it's, we spoke about it already a little bit, is to allow yourself to be questioned, realizing that it is only an idea that is questioned, an idea that you presented, but it is not necessarily your opinion or your identity. So if you adapt this attitude of, okay, there is an opinion that I consider adopting, <laughs> let's examine, then why on earth would that be uncomfortable? It would be interesting. An area where questions are perhaps rightfully scary is in the workplace. And I know that a lot of people who listen to this are taking their first steps on the career ladder or starting a business or doing something where they're putting themselves out there and a necessity of that is asking questions, right? Whether it be to understand the job they need to do, negotiate a pay rise, unlock new knowledge, find meaning in their work, whatever it might be. All of those things sit on the other side of rightfully uncomfortable questions. And I use the word rightfully because getting them wrong could cause them financial harm. It could cause them harm in their career. How do we structure questions, particularly in places like workplaces where precision is important to make sure that we're asking the right questions at the right time to the right people? Is there any sort of framework there? I would say, don't assume that there is a right question and the right time to the right person. There are questions and there are people to ask those questions. And again, I would say the first two things is question yourself as to why am I nervous about this question? Suppose you want to negotiate a higher salary. You want to ask a question like, can, can, I, can we raise maybe my salary? And it makes you nervous then question yourself first why does this topic of asking more money make me so nervous then you might find out that you yourself are questioning yourself and thinking that you are maybe not worth a higher salary well there's some work to do there um, so question yourself first as to why you're nervous and second um, again reconcile explicitly with the with the fact that there is something you do not know yet, but you're very curious. So just state it. And maybe even make your nervousness explicit. Just say, hey, Jack, look, I want to ask a question. I'm not sure how to, to propose it to you. I'm a bit nervous, to be quite honest. Is it okay if I just propose the question to you, to you and we can go from there? Because usually once you say it, the, the your nerves calm down already and jack will usually say something to uh, make you feel at ease as well um and i think that in the conversation just stay close to yourself ask one question at the time that is a genuine question and do not feel responsible for what the other person might feel when you ask this or that question. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is asking clean questions and really listening to the answer that you're getting. But your responsibility is not making the other person feel safe. So I want to end on this. And it kind of touches on your previous point, which is that we almost need to ask ourselves questions in order to ask good questions outwardly. Something that's been on my mind a lot since we planned to have this conversation. It's the fact that I ask myself 
in my mind and even sometimes out loud lots and lots of questions and I might be unusual but I assume that everybody's the same questions are almost a way in which I navigate through problems understand the world make plans whatever it might be and so in a very direct way the actions I take the decisions I make and the path I take in life is based on the questions I ask myself how can we ask ourselves better questions when we are the feedback loop Oh, I love this. Well, there's a particular exercise that I would like to propose to people. And it is as follows. You take a piece of paper and a pen and you write down one question, one question that is on your mind that's bothering you. For example, I once had a woman that wanted to investigate the question, why do I get so nervous when I have to speak in public? She had a job where she had to present a lot of a, a lot of things at, at meetings and such. And she always got so nervous and she did not understand why. So she put down one question. Why do I get nervous, nervous when speaking in public, public? And then you're actually your own philosopher. So you write down your answer to the question. And then you write again one question and then one answer and one question and one answer. And then you put it away so you can do like 10 questions, 10 answers. You put it away and then a couple of days later you look at it and be very mm, strict. So just observe and, and notice like, oh, I am not really answering that question. Or here I'm contradicting myself. That's interesting. What would that be? And then you can start a whole new section again. So in that way, you're not just fiddling around in your own mind, but you're actually doing work on paper that you can later review. And as you do it often, then you might even see some progress in the cleanness or sharpness of your answers and your questioning. Because we ourselves, even, even myself, I'm, I'm pretty good at asking questions, better at asking questions to other people, but I am too good at bullshitting myself still because there are questions that are are tough and hard and make us uneasy or unsure or sad and it's too easy to avoid those so if you start questioning yourself you have to be really thorough and really critical and really strict so sometimes i would advise people pretend that you're someone else that is asking a question and then go back into yourself to answer the question so in that way you can switch. I sometimes ask myself, well, what mean question would Socrates ask me at this point? Because he would have no mercy whatsoever. So what would he say that, you know, that might help as well. And this exercise is, um, I think it's very effective. I learned it from uh, Oscar Brenefier, which is a, a practical philosopher as well, who does a lot of critical thinking work, which is very inspiring. So this exercise is, um, it's very helpful, I think. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much for this. Your book, How to Know Everything, is out now. I'll make sure that there is a link to it in the show notes for anybody who wants to get their hands on it and get better at asking questions, which is something that we've uncovered today. Most of us are terrible at. If somebody wants to find you elsewhere online, where can they go? They can go to, well, it's a Dutch website now, actually. So probably they can go to denksmederij.nl. Maybe I'll find an international... Uh, I will host some international websites and I will send you the link after. But um, for now, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Great. Thank you.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.